This is Heather Meckes, Director of Discipleship at CRC, and this is our podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope this inspires you, encourages you, and allows you to see how God is moving in and around you. If you would like to check out more resources, go to coopersvillereform.com. Enjoy the message. It is in your precious and holy name that we pray. Amen. Good morning, church. Good morning. I am Pastor John, and I have the privilege of serving here as lead pastor. Our six-year-old daughter, Sienna, uh, loves looking back at pictures in quick videos on our phone. And what it has become over the years is it's become a way for Sienna, our daughter, to help understand her family's history. Maybe you and some of you back in the day, y'all gonna remember photo albums. Now we just have iPhones, right, with, with photos scattered throughout them. Um, she'll look, Sienna will, at Helen and I's first date picture. We have like this first date picture. Uh, then she'll look at the engagement pictures. Then she'll look at our wedding pictures. And she'll even get down to her birth pictures when she was first born in the hospital. And when she's looking through these pictures and brief videos on our phone, we'll often take some time to explain some backstories and provide further context to where we were at in this certain season of life. And in those cases, and when you're dealing especially with a six-year-old, it always has a bit of a positive spin to it, although as she has gotten a little older, we have been open and honest with her about some of the struggles that we have experienced in nine years, for instance, three miscarriages. And so we have, start to sh- we have started to share a little bit of that with her. Um, because we think that's right, and we believe the Lord is leading us to do that. But what it has become is it's a beautiful way to know where you have come from. And for our daughter, that's what looking back at pictures and short videos on mommy and daddy's phone is. One thing I love about the Word of God is that it gives a clear, accurate, and honest depiction of the family of God's history. Like, in this word, you're not just going to get the Instagram real worthy stuff, the Facebook worthy stuff. You know, when you post on Facebook, it's always they vacations, you got your makeup on, ladies, fellas, you have your hair combed, you look good and sharp, and you'll post that on Facebook because you're having a good time. What I love about the Word of God is it's honest. It's, it's honest. It shows the good, the bad, the ugly. Some would say it's often ugly. It's often bloody. It's often not pretty or buttoned up. 
the scriptures give an honest and accurate account of our history, of our story. We've been working our way through Nehemiah over the last several weeks. I think we're um, around week eight or so, and we're just plowing through this book. I pray that it has been an encouragement to you. And in Nehemiah, um, we discover a Jewish man who is in exile living in the capital city of Persia, Susa, named Nehemiah, and he is a cupbearer to the king. In Nehemiah, we find out, hears about the sad state that Israel is in and also the walls in the gates that have been torn and burned to the ground some 140 years. This has been the state of Jerusalem, and some of the exiles have come back, but it is still in ruins. And so by a miraculous set of events, the king allows Nehemiah and gives him his blessing to go and help rebuild the city walls. And so here's Nehemiah coming back to Jerusalem. And this was actually his first time in Jerusalem as far as we know. And he is going to galvanize and rally a group of Israelites to build the walls and to erect the city gates so that the people of God can come in the holy city of God and worship God. That was their desire. In every step of the way as we have been reading, Nehemiah and his team of Israelites encounter opposition. Because anytime you want to get to this, you're going to encounter opposition. There's going to be battles to be fought. And that's what the people of God encounter. But praise be to God, Nehemiah and his team, through the Spirit of God, persevere. And now the city gates and the city walls are erect. And in Nehemiah chapter 8, we read they have their first church service. And the word of God is being read, the books of the law, the Pentateuch, the book in five parts, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy are being read, and they literally teach and read the word of God for six hours. And what's miraculous about that is there's no one that fell asleep, right? You know, it was sad. I'll, I'll share this. You know, we had someone teach a couple weeks ago, our, our elder. She goes, John, I was surprised how many people sleep during the message being up here. I said, really? She goes, yeah. I said, that didn't happen here that we see. And it could also be because most of them were standing if they were able for much of the time. But they were so locked into the word of God that God was captivating their hearts in such a way. And they started with weeping. Nehemiah calls them back to rejoicing and to go and feast and celebrate what God has done. And then they read in the word of God and they have a bit of a men's group. Speaking of Reggie coming to our men's group with um, many men from Matthew's house. They have a bit of a men's group and they're convicted and they're pierced in the heart. And they say, what we have to do with the word of God says, it's the seventh month. We're supposed to be meeting in makeshift shelters called the Festival of Booths. We're supposed to be doing this. And so they go and do it. They basically have a seven night worship service where they're camping out in tents, essentially. 
And they do that, and now we're in Nehemiah 9, and it's about three days past that. And this is where we're going to be camping out. And and I'm just going to give you a heads up. We're going to read all of this, and I'm not going to get fancy with it. Just like 444 B.C. or so, where the Word of God was simply read and people came around and under the Word of God, we're just going to read his word and expect God to do something awesome in our hearts. Amen? Let me, let me pray for us before we dive into Nehemiah chapter 9. Father, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts in an awesome way. Father, for you are an awesome God. You alone are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, faithful for generations. And Father, I pray that your word through your spirit would penetrate our hearts, minister to our hearts, and meet us in the place where we personally need to be met and also where we corporately need to be met. Father, this is your word as your man. I sit up under it, and I ask for you to speak. Thank you for being faithful. Thank you for being gracious. Thank you for being merciful. And we come to you humbly asking that you would speak. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. This is going to be found in page 390 in your pew Bibles. Guys, I, I, can't, I can't push this enough. If you have a Bible, bring it to church. Bring your Bible to church. Or if you just love the Pew Bible, love the Pew Bible, that's great. But if at all possible, bring your Bible to church. I'd say we probably have a 10% bring your Bible to church crew. About 10% of us. Bring your Bibles to church. Bring your Bibles to church. Verses 1 through 4 in Nehemiah 9. On the 24th day of the same month, the Israelites gathered together, fasting and wearing sackcloth and putting dust on their heads. Those of Israelite descent had separated themselves from all foreigners. They stood in their places and confessed their sins and the sins of their ancestors. They stood where they were and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day again. Approximately three hours here. And they spent another quarter in confession, now six hours, reading from the word and confessing their sin and in worshiping the Lord their God. Standing on the stairs of the Levites were Jeshua, Benai, Cadmiel, Shebaniah, Benai, Sherebiah, Benai, Canina, they cried out with loud voices to the Lord their God. The people of God, again, are spending large chunks of their day simply reading the word of God and confessing their sin. Confession is simply calling out your sin and owning your sin. Essentially, confession is coming to the place of agreement with God as it relates to your sin? Have you, as a pattern, come to a place of agreement as it relates to your sin with God? 
Have you confessed your sin? We know in the New Covenant, the Apostle John, in his letter, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, writes, empowered and led by the Holy Spirit, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just. If we confess our sins, he, Jesus, is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us from all unrighteousness. That is the power of Christ through confession. Have you experienced that? Are you experiencing that? Because it's not a one and done deal. It's not something we do and we're done with it. We confess our sin on a regular basis. The, the Israelites will acknowledge all God has done for them as Israel, and they will confess all the ways that Israel has disgraced what God has done for them. And in this chapter, they confess that they received everything and they have appreciated nothing. And they're not only confessing their own sin, if you, if you read with me, but they're confessing the sin of their dead ancestors. And it seems a bit over the top, doesn't it? Like, why would we confess the sin of those who are already long gone? I think there's something beautiful and freeing about it as I was considering it and chewing on it throughout the week. Too often, we use our ancestors' sin as an excuse for why we do what we do, for why we sin how we sin. I hear this all the time, and I have been prone to doing it when I was a young man myself. I still am a young man. Well, my grandfather and father had a drinking problem, so it's inevitable. Well, you know, my grandfather and father treated women this way. So, of course, you know. Or my mother and grandmother, they all were divorced. So, you know, of course, it's sure to happen. What if we confess the sin of our families, thus confessing that some of those same sin patterns may seek to lurk us as even believers? What if we did a better job of honestly looking at our family's history, called out the sin to God, and if they're still alive, not seeking to lure that over their heads or allow that to loom over their heads, but allow them to be freed from it through your confession and hopefully through their faith in Christ? What if we became the catalyst? in our families that would spur on a new movement and new patterns throughout generations. I would, I would argue that's the heart here. And it's rare to see that. And let me say this, your confession and repentance has the power to have generational impact do you know that? 
that your confession in repentance can have impact leading to generations of faithfulness. Do you believe that? And so we're essentially going to see not only the longest recorded prayers my brother Greg Johnson mentioned in all of scripture, but also perhaps the greatest Old Testament survey ever recorded. The Levites here are just going to pray the meta-narrative of the Old Testament and remember what time we're in. We're approaching the intertestament period. We're 440-ish BC. So if this was chronological, this would be like on par and online with the contemporary Malachi as we're leading in to Jesus. This is where we're at. It's a prayer, but it's also an honest and clear overview of their history. I've provided some subheadings, and you're gonna see a lot of scripture on the screen. That's why I encourage you, if you're able to see it in front of you, it will probably be better. If not, the words are on the screen. We're gonna read a large chunk of scripture today. We're gonna continue in Nehemiah 9, verses five and six. In the Levites, and I'll let you read those names in your heart, said, stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, and may it be exalted above all blessing and praise. You alone are the Lord. You made the heavens, even the highest heavens, in all their starry host, the earth in all that is on it, the seas in all that is in them. You give life to everything. In the multitudes of heaven, worship you. They are preparing to confess their sin and they start with praise for who God is. They have a right view of God as creator and sustainer. And it is this view of God that is shaping them in this view of God that is going to provide momentum for their prayer. When you call on God, do you first acknowledge who he is? You are righteous, God. You are creator. You have the hosts of heaven worshiping you. You form the earth and all that is in it. You form the cosmos, God. They go back to the Genesis account, Genesis 1 and 2, in their prayer. And now they're going to jump to Genesis 12 through 17. And we're going to look at covenant. Nehemiah 9, verses 7 and 8. You, again, you are the Lord God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and named him Abraham. You found his heart faithful to you and you made a covenant with him to give to his descendants the land of the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Jebusites, and Girgashites. You have kept your promise. 
because you are righteous. They progress to the Abrahamic covenant in their prayer. And when God shows a man who would be faithful to him, God, you are a covenant keeper. God, you are a promise keeper. God, you are a way maker. God, you are a sustainer. God, you are a creator. So from Abraham, we get God's family, the Israelites. From there, we get 12 sons who make up the 12 tribes of Israel. And they're eventually brought to Egypt through a massive famine, and they become slaves. Then the prayer moves on to the Exodus story, specifically Exodus chapter 2 through chapter 15. And so here's the Exodus, Nehemiah 9, 9 through 12. Again, the people of God just calling on God. You, you God. You saw the suffering of our ancestors in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea. You sent signs and wonders against Pharaoh, against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. Are you being mistreated today? Just know this, God sees it. If you are a product of injustice today, in any way, understand this, God sees that mistreatment, and he will respond in due time. Against all his officials and all the people of his land, for you knew how arrogantly the Egyptians treated them. You made a name for yourself which remains to this day. You divided the sea before them so that they passed through it on dry ground, but you hurled their prisoners into the depths like a stone into mighty waters. By day you led them with a pillar of cloud and by night with a pillar of fire to give them light on the way they were to take. In this prayer, they are constantly being reminded of God's faithful, steadfast love. How he sees his people's sufferings, how he performs signs and miracles, how he makes a lasting name for himself, and how he provides for his people in mighty ways. And it's wild because sometimes we can believe that God created everything, like going back to the Genesis account, but he can do nothing. Sometimes we believe that in our hearts. But in this spirit-led survey, we are reminded that God not only created the seas, but he split them as well. Looking back at his power, church, should stir you up in your faith today to trust in that same power that created the universe, that split the Red Sea in half. It should stir you up to trust in that same power for all that you need today. What do you need from God today that's going to desperately long for his power in his hand to move in your life and in your situation. It continues to the months spent at Mount Sinai now. 
which are found in Exodus 19 through Exodus 40. Nehemiah 9, 13 through 18. You, again, you, God, came down on Mount Sinai. You spoke to them from heaven. You gave them regulations and laws that are just and right and decrees and commands that are good. You made known to them your holy Sabbath and gave them commands, decrees, and laws through your servant, Moses. In their hunger, you gave them bread from heaven and in their thirst, you brought them water from the rock. You told them to go in and take possession of the land you had sworn with uplifted hand to give them. Notice that right there, and you you could just pause that right there. You gave them regulations and laws that were just and right and good. Do you see God's laws and regulations as just, right, and good? Or are they simply stumbling blocks to your joy, to your freedom? Notice their view of law. Notice their view in that many Hebrew scholars will share law is not always the best interpretation. And sometimes it's better to say instruction. That was the purpose of the law, to instruct, Torah, instruction. I believe too often we see God's word, and, and this happens if you're unregenerate, if you don't know Christ and you have not been born again, you see this as restrictive. When you come to Christ and you're born again, you all of a sudden view this as freedom because that's what it is. God's rules, laws, regulation, his holy standard is meant for your flourishing. It's meant for your joy. It's meant for your excitement. And it's meant for his honor when you obey it. Not a stumbling block to what I really want to do. What you really want to do will lead you to hell. What you really want to do will lead you to death and destruction. For your heart is deceitfully evil and wicked above all else. Who should know it, Jeremiah said. This is freedom. Because the reality is you're either going to be a slave to your sin or you're going to be a child of God living in the overflow of his word and of his blessings and promises. And that's why when the opponents of God today take his word and they usually do so grossly out of context and they throw it out there to mock God and his people, it's foolishness and it comes from a distorted view of God and his word. We'll continue in Mount Sinai, verses 16 through 18 now. But they, our ancestors, become or became arrogant and stiff-necked. Some of y'all remember raising teenagers. Stiff-necked. And they did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. They became stiff-necked in their rebellion, appointed a leader in order to return to their slavery. But you... 
are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. Therefore, you did not desert them, even when they cast for themselves an image of a calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt, or when they committed awful blasphemies. Maybe you're reading this and you're thinking, how could they have been so foolish, right? Like, how could the children of God be so rebellious and foolish and stiff-necked and arrogant? Look at us. Look at us. We live on the other side of the new covenant. We have the full counsel of God. And it can be easy to run from this thing. It can be easy to allow our Bible to accumulate so much dust. I believe it was Charles Spurgeon. He said, if your Bible collects so much dust, you may be able to write condemned on it. There we go as well. If it not be for God's faithful pursuit and his steadfast love and his mercy and his grace, you can learn and I can learn from the children of Israel today and submit fully to God unashamedly. Now he's going to cover the period of possessing the promised land as recorded in Numbers 20 through Joshua 24. He's going to cover a large portion of the meta-narrative of scripture. Here's the promised land. Nehemiah 9, 22 through 25, and we're just gonna do a lot of reading now. You gave them kingdoms and nations, allotting to them even the remotest frontiers. They took over the country of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the country of Og, king of Bashan. You made their children as numerous as the stars in the sky, which is what he promised for Abraham. And you brought them in the land that you told their parents to enter and possess. Their children went in and took possession of the land. You subdued before them the Canaanites who lived in the land. You gave the Canaanites into their hands along with their kings and the peoples of the land to deal with them as they pleased. Continuing, verse 25, they captured fortified cities in fertile land. They took possession of houses filled with all all kinds of good things, wells already dug, vineyards, olive groves, and fruit trees in abundance. They ate to the full and were well nourished. They revealed in, or reveled rather, in your great goodness. At this time, we're just going to allow this story to captivate our hearts. We're going to continue to read. Now he moves to the judges and kings, Nehemiah 9, 26 through 28. But they were dis obedient, and they rebelled against you. They turned their backs on your law. They killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed awful blasphemies. So you delivered them into the hands of your enemies who oppressed them. 
But when they were oppressed, they cried out to you. From heaven, you heard them. And in your great compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the hand of their enemies. Continuing in verses 26 through 28, or 28 rather, on. But as soon as they were at rest, they again did what was evil in your sight. Then you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they ruled over them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and in your compassion, you delivered them time after time. Remember, this is a people of God who have been running hard and far away from God. Maybe perhaps some kept some of the religious obligation, but their hearts as a whole were far from him. And so they are praying and looking back with a heavy heart, the faithfulness of God, and they are realizing we're doing the same as our ancestors. Then they moved to the exile, Nehemiah 9, 29 through 31. You warn them, this is a continued prayer. You warn them in order to turn them back to your law, but they became arrogant and disobeyed your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, of which you said the person who obeys them will live by them. Stubbornly, they turned their backs on you, became stiff-necked again, and refused to listen. For many years, you were patient with them by your spirit you warned them through your prophets yet they paid no attention so you gave them into the hands of the neighboring peoples but in your great mercy you do not put an end to them or abandon them for you are a gracious and merciful god verse 32 we see now confession repentance and mercy now they're going to turn in a little bit onto themselves now, now therefore, our God, the great God, mighty and awesome, who keeps his covenant of love, do not let all of this hardship seem trifling in your eyes, the hardship that has come on us, on our kings and leaders, on our priests and prophets, on our ancestors and all the people from the days of the kings until today. Now look at this ownership, and this is what true confession and repentance is. In all that has happened to us, you've remained righteous. You've acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. It's adhering to the righteousness of God while calling out your wickedness and calling it for what it is. Our kings, verse 34, our leaders, our priests, and our ancestors did not follow your law. They did not pay attention to your commands or the statutes you warned them to keep. Verse 35, continuing, even while they were in their kingdom, enjoying your great goodness to them in the spacious and fertile land you gave them, they did not serve you or turn from their evil ways. But see, we are slaves today, slaves in the land you gave our ancestors so they could eat its fruit and the other good things it produces. Because of our sins, its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have placed over us. They rule over our bodies and our cattle as they please. We are in great distress. Talk about an accurate depiction of what truly has gone down 
The prayer essentially has a rhythm, if you haven't caught it. God is good and gracious to Israel. God is faithful to Israel. Israel is unfaithful in sins against God. And God shows mercy and patience to them. Can you not relate with that in your life? God has been good to you. He's been gracious to you. He's been kind to you. He has lovingly pursued you. And you and I have sinned against him openly, rebelliously. And he has been merciful to us and patient with us. Aren't you glad we serve a God like that? And what the people of God are saying here is, God, we want you to do it again. We want you to be merciful again. They want God to show his mercies anew. I encourage you to make the same argument, to make the same plea as the people of God here in 444 B.C. or so. When you want to bless God, when you want to praise him, this is what you do. You take stock of all of his goodness to you. Then you make confession of your sins. You confess all of your sins. You own up, make a full accounting of your iniquity. Then you rehearse the repetitions of his mercies and ask him for more, for he loves to overflow his mercies on his people. And then they, in the last verse here, verse 38, provide a written covenant. It says, in view of all of this in verse 38, what do we know in view, in view of? When you think of the New Testament, what do you think of? I think of, I think of Romans 12. In view of his mercies. What, what do we do? We worship with all of our body which is all of our embodiment, all of who we are. We don't have time for that this morning, though. I, I thought I was going to go there. In view of all of this, the Word of God says, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders, our Levites, and our priests are affixing their seals to it. Friends, hear me out. In conclusion, this is the God we serve. He is abounding in steadfast love. He has made a name for himself that remains to this day. He still speaks to his people today as he did at Mount Sinai. He provides for his people today as he did in the wilderness. He is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love today as he was then. He still doesn't desert or abandon his people. He tarries long with them, longer than you believe he can. He will. He still gives his good spirit to instruct his people, and still today he exhibits great mercy, for he is a gracious and merciful God who is mighty and awesome and who keeps his covenant of love. That is still who God is today. So let me encourage you, 
If you are able, as the Levites did in verse 4, verse 5 rather, in Nehemiah chapter 9, CRC, stand up and let's praise the Lord our God. Would you pray with me as we prepare our hearts for these last songs? Father God, you are faithful. Father God, when generations desert you, when people desert you, when our ancestors have sinned against you, when we have followed in their footsteps and we have repeated those same sin patterns, you still are faithful despite our reproach, despite our unfaithfulness, despite our disobedience and rebellion. You have been good. You have been patient with us. You've been kind to us. You've been loving towards us. And you have drawn us through your spirit. And you have placed your good spirit within us to guide us, to awaken us, to convict us of our sin, righteousness, and judgment so that we would not continue to live rebellious of you. Thank you, God, for what you have done. May our heart's song be your faithfulness, be your goodness, be your kindness, be your mercy. May we be encouraged and in awe of who you are and thankful that you forgive sins through your son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. We love you, we praise you, and may these songs glorify your holy name. In Jesus Christ we pray. Amen. To close, two hymns. Yes, two. Room at the cross for you. Three verses and then we'll quickly go into turn your eyes upon Jesus and we'll remain